some of America's biggest public pension funds pouring money into China. Find out if your retirement funds are part of the flow. Two-thirds of the Chinese population might be earning less than $300 per month. That number disclosed by a prominent Chinese economist. Some Chinese goods get a new deadline for low tariffs perks. A closer look at the categories. And Chinese intelligence, wealthy tycoons, criminal triads working together in America's backyard. How deep does Beijing's infiltration in the West really go? A former high-level Canadian intelligence official breaks it down. Every prime minister have been unfortunately compromise. Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany Meyer. American public pension funds are pouring money into China. That's despite the federal government's efforts to curb investment that could advance the Chinese regime's military technology. A new report by nonprofit Future Union reveals that over the past three years, 56 of the largest 74 American pension plans have invested a total of more than $68 billion into Chinese stocks. The nonprofit says that money can be used by the Chinese regime to boost its military and undermine the U.S. It's also possible that investors won't get their money back. That's if Beijing were to freeze the funds, given the current tensions between the U.S. and China. Public pension funds are large savings accounts for government workers, including teachers or police officers. These workers contribute part of their paychecks to these accounts in exchange for retirement benefits later. The funds are managed by the government, which invests the money in stocks and bonds to grow it over time. Funds from New York, California, Washington, and Pennsylvania are among the largest investing in Chinese companies. Beyond that, endowment funds run by American public school systems and universities are also pouring billions into China. Nonprofit Future Union says private universities may be just as guilty, though it's harder to track down those numbers. It reveals that Princeton has at least $155 million invested in Chinese funds, followed by other top universities. The report highlights what critics call a lack of accountability among pension fund managers. Future union advocates for restrictions on these investments and plans to present its fundings to Congress. As the countdown to a new year begins, one of Wall Street's largest investment banks has summed up lessons they learned from investing in China this year. First and foremost, pinning hopes on China's economy. Here's more. At the beginning of 2023, Goldman Sachs was one of the many Wall Street firms to bet on a potential bombastic market recovery in the communist country. Just after Beijing lifted its draconian pandemic lockdown, Goldman hoped that an economic rebound in China could set other developing nations on a smooth sailing path to recovery. But that prediction fell short, as Chinese stocks plummeted over 15 percent this year, while other emerging markets showed resilience. The moral of the story here, according to one of Goldman's researchers, is to separate China from developing nations and be faithful to the emerging markets. Back in November, Goldman Sachs' chief executive said that the company has scaled back some funds from China. Thus, as prediction hint more economic uncertainties in the communist nation are ahead. Sam Wang, NTD News. The Chinese economy may be in even worse shape than expected. Two out of every three people in China could be earning less than $300 per month. That's the number accidentally revealed by a top Chinese economist. Li Xunlei is the vice chairman of the China Chief Economist Forum. He mentioned in a recent article that over 960 million people in China earn a monthly income below 2,000 RMB, or around 300 U.S. dollars. 
The article was meant to discuss insufficient demand in consumption in China, but it sparked a heated discussion online. It became the number one trending topic on Chinese social media Weibo before getting deleted. The article was published on Shanghai First Finance, a magazine owned by Shanghai city government, under the Chinese Communist Party, of course. Li had been citing data from a survey conducted by Beijing Normal University, a top university in China. The revelation echoes a 2020 statement from former Chinese Premier Li Keqiang. He said then about 600 million people earning a monthly income below 1,000 RMB or 150 US dollars. With some 900 million Chinese people living with less than $300 a month, what does that mean for the Chinese economy and how much worse can it get? We sat down with Antonio Graceffo, economic and national security analyst, for his take. The income disparity in China is just absolutely staggering. So the average income in China officially is, let's say it's about $12,000 a year. But the vast majority of people do not earn $12,000 a year. You know, the vast majority of people earn about $300 a month. That's uh, what about $3,600 a year, which puts them on par with, with India. China is the second richest country by GDP, but it is the 72nd richest country by per capita GDP. So they're only number 72 in terms of the wealth of the average citizen, but that is only an average. And that average has no meaning at all because there's such a huge disparity between rich and poor in China. So you, you mentioned income dispar- disparity earlier. What are, what are the impacts on the economy when there's uh, such an extreme impa- uh, income disparity? Well, the, the uh, income disparity, so the Gini, Gini coefficient is the measure of income disparity. And the higher the number, uh, the more disparate the income is. And so in the U.S., I think we're around four. And um, the the uh, World Bank, the IMF, they've always warned that if it goes well above five, that you'll start to have social unrest, you know, instability, you know, because the poor people will start revolting. Now, in China... I personally believe that the Gini coefficient is much higher than the official government number because the number we're using is the government number. And um, right now, I think it's about 4.6. It may even be a little lower. I think it was 4.6 during 2022. It's a little bit lower now. Now, that's higher than Western Europe. It's higher than Japan. But, you know, it's on par with the United States. So, But we don't really see instability. We don't see riots. We don't see, you know, bread riots or something like that going on in China. So the, so the question is, I don't know how high the number has to go for China to, to have instability. Um, I mean, it, it, there's other problems that people just don't have disposable income. And Xi Jinping wants to shift the economy to a consumption economy. And that won't work if the people don't have money to spend. Well, all right. Thank you so much for your insight today, Antonio. Thank you, Donwa. Britain's largest drug maker is continuing its push into the Chinese market. AstraZeneca on Tuesday saying it would buy a Chinese cancer therapy company for $1.2 billion. The cash deal is set to close in 2024. The Chinese company focuses on cell therapies for cancer. This is currently a space dominated by other big players such as Gilead Sciences and Novartis. China is the second largest market for AstraZeneca, right after the U.S. Over 10% of its revenue last year came from China. The deal marks one of AstraZeneca's first acquisitions in China. In the past, it has mainly been signing licensing deals for drugs. It also made a deal with a Chinese biotech firm to develop a weight loss pill this November. 
It's the season of holiday spirit. Christmas trees and ornaments decorate scores across major cities in China. But for other parts of the country, extending holiday wishes is out of the question. NTD's Sam Wong has more. From schools to private firms and public offices, Chinese authorities urge the public to think twice about celebrating foreign traditions and instead be confident in their own culture. To echo that directive, some schools send out notices restricting Christmas parties, plus holiday-themed clothing, greeting cards, and decorations, even vowing to punish those who breach the rules. In northwest China, a CCP youth group told its members to watch the battle at Lake Changjin, a film depicting Chinese troops fighting U.S. forces during the Korean War. An image circulating online shows a slogan displayed outside of a school. It reads, in today's China, there is no Christmas, only Lake Changjin. The restrictions trigger anger online. Some internet users responded, how should we look at Western ideologies such as Marxist-Leninist theory? Others noted, the Gregorian calendar was invented by foreigners. Might as well stop using it. Worth noting, the Chinese Communist Party promotes atheism. Despite not banning Christianity, Beijing has been accused of handpicking priests and bishops based on its likings. And in some instances, authorities have also rewritten portions of the Bible to fit its narratives. Christians remain a religious minority in China. Some have faced severe harassment and persecution, forcing them to take their churches and beliefs underground. Sam Wang, NTD News. A new weapon has arrived for the U.S. military. The U.S. Navy just received its first unmanned submarine called Orca. From aerospace giant Boeing, the vehicle is a prototype designed to run by itself for months, both above and below surface water. According to its maker, Orca is capable of carrying out missions in changing environments. The announcement comes as the Pentagon seeks to ramp up its military capacity against China, which currently holds the world's largest fleet of ships and submarines. As of now, the U.S. has the world's most cutting-edge warships, but the Chinese Navy is looking to overtake Washington's technical upper hand with greater numbers of vessels. Beijing now boasts over 370 naval ships and submarines. The U.S. Navy is set to receive five more orcas at a future date. Coming up, a slew of Chinese goods get a new deadline for low tariffs perks. A look at what goods qualify. And details on the inner workings of Chinese intelligence operations in the West. A former high-level Canadian intelligence official breaks it down. Every prime minister have been unfortunately compromised. And not only prime ministers, but every single level of political level in, in Canada, from municipal to provincial to uh, federal level. That and more after the break here in China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany. Washington is keeping tariffs low on over 350 Chinese goods, including COVID-19 related medical products. Examples include face masks and sanitizing wipes, plus car parts and chemicals. The Office of the U.S. Trade Representative announced Tuesday it would extend tariff exceptions on those goods through next May so that the public would have time to comment on them. Former President Trump slapped tariffs on over $300 billion worth of Chinese goods. That's after an investigation found that Beijing has been stealing American know-how. China's theft has cost the U.S. dearly, up to $600 billion per year. President Biden has largely kept Trump's China tariffs in place. In 2020, Washington exempted COVID-related products from high tariffs due to the pandemic. 
That's despite his cabinet being divided on the issue. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says she's leaning toward rolling back some tariffs. On the other hand, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai has defended them, calling the measures a significant piece of leverage when negotiating with China. She also noted that a trade negotiator never walks away from leverage. Next, an update on China's real estate meltdown. The world's second largest economy failed to pick up steam this year after lifting COVID-19 rules and lockdowns, with the real estate market taking one of the most direct hits. According to China Real Estate Information Corp., the market values of property developers listed in mainland China and Hong Kong have shrunk by nearly 28% this year. About 30% of China's GDP comes from real estate and other related sectors. It's a much higher percentage than any other major economy. Human-like robots fighting in war zones. What looks like a scene straight out of sci-fi movie could soon happen in real life. The Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, is ordering scientists to develop humanoid robots for military use. We sat down with a China expert to understand the threat. During his meeting with the Chinese regime leader in November, President Biden pledged to ban the use of artificial intelligence in autonomous weapons. But China has been planning to embrace the tech instead. Beijing first put the plan on the table in a directive released this October. The CCP is aiming to build a comprehensive system to create cutting-edge robots. The development of humanoid robots for military use is a crucial leverage for the CCP to surpass the U.S. in non-traditional military domains. Tang Jingyuan is a China affairs analyst. He also hosts a popular Chinese talk show. For many years, the CCP has been aware of the huge gaps between the U.S. military and its own militaries in traditional domains, such as ground, maritime and air forces. It's hard for them to catch up quickly, so the CCP has consistently pursued advancement in emerging fields such as AI, new energy, unmanned devices, the cyberspace and humanoid robots, aiming for an asymmetrical advantage. Since the starting point in these fields are relatively close, the CCP sees an opportunity to catch up with or even surpass U.S. So what are humanoid robots? Waving, wiggling, blinking. They are robots that can mimic humans. Beijing's goal is to mass-produce these robots within two years and put them to work in the military. How would China achieve this goal? If they can't get it, they steal it. Casey Fleming is the CEO of Black Ops Partners Corporation. The answer is both because China has been stealing our IP, whether it's through students in universities or professors in universities, uh, where we actually have partnered with China and given them $30 million grants for artificial intelligence. The last 100 years in the United States was built on innovation, but China is the, the world's best thief, the world's best pirate. Fleming was referring to the case of Zhu Song Chun. Zhu is a Chinese professor who worked for almost two decades at UCLA. He specialized in computing and robots. The Pentagon had granted him over $30 million in research funding. Song returned to China in 2020 and joined Beijing's talent plan. Once there, he started working at a top Chinese university, supported by the CCP's military research, and became a leader in China's AI field. What would it mean for the world if the CCP actually develops an army of humanoid robots?
That is indeed a very alarming prospect, as the development and mass production of highly intelligent humanoid robots shows that the CCP has mature capabilities in advanced manufacturing, cutting-edge materials technology, and AI, and that's a comprehensive set of skills. The CCP could potentially establish a robot army if it comes true in the future. The CCP's ambition for global dominance are unstoppable. The whole world might be at risk of descending into war and turmoil. It remains to be seen how far the Chinese regime could go in creating humanoid robots for military use. A classified report is exposing the true depths of Beijing's infiltration in the West. Why was the report ordered to be destroyed? Plus, what did it uncover about how Chinese intelligence, wealthy tycoons, and criminal triads work together? American thought leaders host Yanya Kellick spoke to the report's author, Michelle Juno Katsuya, for more. He's the former Asia-Pacific Bureau Chief of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. I'm very glad to welcome you here, actually, as a Canadian, someone who's been, you know, in the field of Canadian intelligence for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And as someone who very early on, before most people even were aware of it, was aware of Chinese Communist Party infiltration, of Canada and, and frankly North America. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the implications today. Before we go there, I want to talk about your career, who you are, where you came from. Well, started in the idea of serving my country uh, right from the get-go to a certain extent. I started my career very early with uh, the Army, uh, but rap rapidly was uh, uh, chosen to join the Royal Canadian Mountain Police, which is our federal police, the equivalent of the FBI, uh, but with the mandate also to work in the community in uniforms like you would have state troopers here or something like this. So I worked as a criminal investigator from 1979 to uh, 1984 where I was called to work with the National Security Division and at that time I started to work counterintelligence and uh, we still during the Cold War at that period of time so I was working on the Soviet desk uh, specifically learning the craft of uh, being a counterintelligence officer at that period of time. Uh, unfortunately, rapidly, the government of Canada decided to create CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. So Friday night, I was an RCMP officer, and uh, Monday morning, I was a CSIS officer. Continue my work as a counterintelligence officer, and uh, eventually, I ended up uh, leading the Asia-Pacific desk. So I was the chief of Asia-Pacific. Asia uh, our ranking system is very similar then to the CIA, so I was the chief of Asia-Pacific for uh, CSIS. Eventually retired in 2000, but went to the private sector to continue my work in and for the private sector. Uh, I realized uh, uh, after over 21 years of service that uh, there was a lack of and a need in the private uh, sector to help private companies to defend themselves against uh, economic espionage, uh, terrorism, and stuff like that. So I, was, I went to do the same thing, but for the private world. Uh, I went to also teach a little bit more. So I was I've, I've been teaching uh, criminology at various universities for all those years. And I became also a writer. And I, I wrote uh, books on uh, spy activities in Canada, been part of uh, 
cannot count anymore the number of documentaries I participated to uh, and with and I even created my own uh, TV series at one point on cases of uh, historical cases of spy activities in Canada and explain the what they, they were what happened and the consequences they led to well so I want to talk about something specific a report that you wrote in 1997 a long long time ago called Sidewinder uh, Sidewinder got um, a lot of flack. Um, it was, you know, I, th I think nobody wanted to see your report, but basically you had a very acute awareness of the a significant level of Chinese Communist Party infiltration within Canada, and you documented that. And also this unholy trinity, which I'm going to get you to, to, mm. to explain to me what that is in a moment. Let's start there. Tell, what, what did you find out in 1997? The full episode is available on epoch.tv. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Don Ma. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for watching. See you tomorrow.